0: Christians are no strangers to suffering, to insult, or disgrace. 2,000 years of church history demonstrate that Christians have undergone trial and unrest from the very beginning. That history extends back even further pre-Christ to the days of the Old Testament where those who follow after God are ridiculed and mistreated by the unrighteous. We understand that signing up to follow Christ is signing up to endure hardship at the hands of those who reject him. This suffering, this hardship often takes place in very physical, tangible ways as Christ's people have been martyred for their belief in him. At other times, the suffering works itself out in the realm of societal shame and ridicule as those who reject God and his very existence lobby insult against those who find their identity and hope in him. But I think even more Personally and more regularly, these insults and this suffering works itself out on the basic level of our neighborhoods, our schools, our workplaces, and even in our families. We seek to follow after Christ and we experience some level of disregard and insult because of it. But then also, we as broken Hypocritical Christians can lobby insults at others. But when an individual is seeking to follow after Christ and everyone around them are providing insult and seeking to disgrace them because of it, that individual can turn to the scriptures and find great hope. And Psalm 4 is a place to find that hope. Because we learn here that God's people can rejoice in the face of insult and disgrace because God faithfully answers prayer. God faithfully protects the faithful and he provides satisfaction and security. So as we meditate on this Psalm of David this morning, we should learn and we should believe that we can rejoice in God's grace even in the face of insult and disgrace, because God is always there and he has the best interests of his people in mind. Would you follow along as I read Psalm 4? For the choir director with stringed instruments, a Psalm of David. Answer me when I call God who vindicates me. You freed me from affliction, Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. How long, exalted ones, will my honor be insulted? How long will you love what is worthless and pursue a lie? Know that the Lord has set apart the faithful for himself. The Lord will hear when I call to him. Be angry and do not sin. On your bed, reflect in your heart and be still. Offer sacrifices and righteousness and trust in the Lord. Many are asking, who can show us anything good? Let the light of your face shine on us, Lord. You could put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and their new wine abound. I will both lie down and sleep in peace. For you alone, Lord, make me live in safety. We first recognize as we follow David's meditation here that God's people can rejoice in his grace, even in the face of insult and disgrace because he faithfully answers prayer. God faithfully answers prayer. David begins this psalm with a petition to the Lord, appealing for a response to his prayer and his appeal is based on the past action of God the past faithful working of God in his life. So notice the pattern here in verse one. There's an appeal to God. Answer me when I call, God. And then there's a reference to God's past work, the God who vindicates me. That is the God who demonstrates that I was in the right because I aligned myself with him. And then there's another reference to God's past work. You freed me from affliction. And now there's a final appeal to God, be gracious to me and hear my prayer. So this appeal to God is grounded in this double accent of God's past faithfulness in David's life. God is the God who hears. He's the God who vindicates the righteous. He's the one who frees from affliction and he's the one who offers grace. In short, David's appealing to a God who at least he believes is faithful to hear his prayers and then do something about it. So in this way, Psalm 3 and Psalm 4 are very similar. So last week we considered Psalm 3. Now we're looking at Psalm 4. They have very similar themes. And it makes sense that the editors of the Psalter would put them side by side. Now, we should not dismiss these Psalms as just boring repetition. It would be easy for us to read these two Psalms back by back and say, okay, I got it and I'm moving on. Instead, I think that this repetition, this second reminder highlights the importance of reflecting on God's past faithfulness to his people and the significance of our present need for him. So, so the repetition is highlighting God is always faithful. You always need him. And the reason he has to remind us of these things, and it has to be repeated in such close proximity, is because of the fickleness of the human heart, which often forgets God, his faithfulness and our need for him. So if you're like me, last Sunday after we meditated on Psalm 3, I went into the week thinking that every challenge I face, I will cry out to God for help. And last night, as I was continuing to work on this sermon and reflecting on the week, that happened far more rarely than I'd want to admit. We are fickle, forgetful people. And so we need this model for responding to our distress and anxiety. We are to appeal to God to listen to us and to respond in faithfulness. There's certainly nothing wrong with talking to our friends, with talking to companions and even your pastors about the challenges you face, but ultimately it is the ear of God that needs to listen to our despair. So we ought to appeal to God and that appeal to God ought to be rooted not in our worthiness, but in the faithfulness of God. The reason that we can cry out to him is not because of anything that we have done or because of who we are, but because of who God is. Our need to appeal is because of who we are, faithless, broken, weak. But our confidence in our appeal is because of God's faithfulness to unfaithful people. So we rightly sing of this mystery of my worth and my unworthiness. Our worth is in Christ. Our worthiness is pervasive because it's who we are. And so the strength of our appeal to God doesn't come from our personal worth or value, but from the value that God has given us in Christ and from the faithfulness of God to show grace to people who deserve the opposite. So David cries out, be gracious to me and hear my prayer. I think that it's easy for us to miss the significance of the individual who David chooses to appeal to. David is appealing to God. Later on, he speaks to Lord in all capital letters, Yahweh, the personal name of God. We live in a society where most people don't believe in God that we'd run into on the street. David lived in a society where all of the neighboring civilizations would pray to multiple gods. And Israel was always in danger of praying to the wrong God by being unfaithful to the God of the Exodus. So when David cries out to God and identifies him as the one who vindicates me, he's saying something more significant even than that God does this but that God alone is the only God who can do this. And as we'll see later in this Psalm, there are other lesser pagan demythologized gods that we put our hope in the physical things of this life. But from the very beginning, our cry and our plea and our desperation ought to be oriented to the one true God. So David cries, he remembers the past freedom from affliction and he appeals to God's grace for him. But I think we need a bit of a sidebar here. What do Christians do when they're in distress, they're seeking to appeal to God and they can't identify a single instance when God vindicated them or freed them from affliction? What do we do when it seems like God doesn't answer our prayers? Does this mean that God is unfaithful? Does this mean that we should look somewhere else? Is there any hope for the person who looks on their life and says, God is silent? The short answer to these questions is, no, God is not unfaithful. And yes, there is hope for this person. Well, why? I think there are at least three reasons. First, we're helped when we remember that the book of Psalms is written in a covenantal context. And really two covenants are at play in the writing of the psalm. There's the Davidic covenant, and then there's the Mosaic covenant, So the first covenant, the Davidic covenant is established by God with David, ensuring that his kingly throne will endure forever. forever, And there will always be a son of David sitting on the throne as God's representative rulership on earth. So when David's position as king is attacked or threatened, God's covenant with David is threatened. And so David can always appeal to God and say, you made a covenant to establish this throne forever. This throne is in jeopardy. Do something about it. And so some of David's expressions of confidence are very situationally specific. And so we can't always claim the exact claim that David claimed but what we can do is appeal to the God with the same character as the God that David appealed to. So we recognize on one level that these Psalms, especially those written by David are written in the context of the Davidic covenant. But then the second covenant is the Mosaic covenant. And in this covenant, especially as we hear it's rearticulation in Deuteronomy, there are promises of blessing. If individuals walked righteously before the Lord, They would remain safe and secure in the land. They would have the blessings of the covenant that they would participate in if they obeyed the stipulations of the covenant. If they disobeyed the stipulations of the covenant, they were in danger of the curses associated with breaking those stipulations. So someone living in the Mosaic covenant, under that covenant, in all of the Psalms are written under that covenant. Any author of the Psalm can sit down, evaluate the course of action that he's taken and seeing that he's kept the stipulations of the covenant only to receive retribution from the wicked and say, I have done righteously. So that's not a claim that they are inherently righteously. It's a claim that in as far as they know, they've kept the stipulations of the covenant and they're not seeing the blessings of the covenant. When we read the Psalms in that light, we understand why there's that expectation that when an individual lives righteously, God will free them from that situation. We need to recognize that we are not part of the Mosaic covenant and our participation in the Davidic covenant is that Christ is sitting on the throne and he's the ruler of our life. So Christ is a king who rules over us, the new covenant people. And so we still plead out to God and expect him to act because he's the same God. There's the same Davidic king, but we have to read our Bibles better than that. We have to read it as a whole. We read it looking for the redemptive historical work of God, in the progression of the salvation of his people. And when we see that we're in the new covenant and when we look at our king, we had a king who suffered and who has ascended and who has promised a return. And what that does is it places us in the realm of what we like to call the already and the not yet. We are already united with Christ. Christ is already reigning this entire world belongs to Christ already, but not yet because he's coming back. And so we need to think almost more like the disciples had to rewire their brains to think whenever they said, Christ, when are you going to rule over all these people and free us from the affliction of the Romans and all of our oppressors? And Christ says something like, it's not for you to know the times and the seasons. I'm coming right now to serve and to save. And there is a future day coming where my rule will be enacted across the planet and all of the wicked will have to bow the knee and they will be displaced while the righteous enjoy the, all of the benefits of the new covenant. And we're called to faithfulness in obedience to the stipulations of that covenant, which is abide in Christ, abide in the life. So as such, all of the blessings of the new covenant life, including total deliverance from the fall, from sin, the enemies of God, and anything else that would beset us awaits the land of the not yet. So when we cry out to God and he doesn't free us immediately, it is not that God is unfaithful or that God is silent. It is just that we haven't recognized what we're called to and where we are in redemptive history. So then, we base our petitions not only in God's faithfulness to those under other covenants, but also in the vision of his future faithfulness to us as depicted in beautiful texts describing the new earth and new life in Christ. So some of us, some of you, may be facing suffering, insult, and disgrace that you can't even measure by those who oppose God and who oppose you because you follow after him. And because we walk in the path of Christ, we may go an entire lifetime without vindication. Our vindication like Christ will come in the resurrection. Christ resurrection vindicated him and proved that he was in the right And one day we will participate in that resurrection as well. So is God faithful? The answer is yes. Now, when we look at this, fitting ourselves in the right spot in redemptive history is a good step into walking faithfully in our suffering. But you might be saying life still stinks. This doesn't help. You're just telling me that I can live the rest of my life in suffering. Well, that's a bum deal. It kind of is. It's not as bad as it sounds, though, as we'll see in a bit. But I think that we can still say that God is faithful, even in our call to suffering, for three reasons. One, although you may have a hard time articulating specific instances of God's grace, kindness, and faithfulness in your life in this time of the not yet, that's not because it isn't there. So as compassionately and kindly as I can say this, I want to tell you that your eyes are clouded by the present world and by the assumption that you deserve more than you actually do. So our... Weak eyes of faith and our sense of entitlement does not render God unfaithful. When we see it clearly by the light of the scriptures and by the aid of the Holy Spirit, we just understand that we deserve no good thing. Such that when we consider our daily meal, the fact that we're all wearing clothes, we thank God for that. We are blessed beyond measure. So instead of comparing your life to someone else or measuring the value of your life by some metric that you've seen presented in a TV show or a commercial, instead of comparing your life in those ways to determine whether or not God has been kind to you, Compare your life to God's standard for righteousness and holiness and the wrath you deserve. If only we would calibrate our lives and our thinking and our appreciation of grace to what we actually deserve, we would see how blessed we are. We would see how kind God is, how regularly we are ungrateful and dissatisfied and fearful without cause so is God unfaithful? No. Just look for his faithfulness in the right places and on his terms and not your own. Two, in addition to the plentitude of spiritual and physical gifts and comforts that we have received from God's hand, all undeserved, In addition to these, any who are identified as God's children in standing in the new covenant community are immeasurably blessed because their souls have found salvation in God alone through the atoning sacrificial death and resurrection of Jesus Christ that's been secured by the spirit. This is a grace and a kindness that is not deserved, nor is it capable of being earned. You can earn physical prosperity by working a nine to five and doing your job every single day as God allows. You can't earn the salvation of your soul. So in the darkest moment of your life, the light of God's kindness still burns bright because he's granted you the grace of entering into his presence as a son or daughter. So no apparent lack of anything good is worthy of being compared to this immeasurable gift. So the suffering you experience now is unworthy of being compared to the gift that you already have. But then third, the suffering you have now that might tempt you to believe God is unfaithful is not worthy of being compared to the future of faithfulness of God that you will experience forever. And that future faithfulness is grounded in Christ himself. And as those who will receive of that great grace, because we are identified with Christ, it is no surprise that we must walk with Christ along the way. And that privilege of following after Christ is a grace. And the suffering that comes by being connected to Christ is a grace as well. So we're granted the grace of identifying with Christ who is insulted and disgraced on our behalf. So in this sense, our disgrace is itself a grace because it places us more firmly on the path of Christ and it draws out more clearly in us the reflection of our Lord. So we hear the words of that German theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer as he meditated on the Beatitudes that when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. That's the call to Christ. But the death is not the end. It's a portal to this life everlasting. So when we bear the shame as Christ did for the joy that's set before us, we're walking through these trials, as a companion of Christ among the company of the redeemed. That's God's faithfulness, to allow us to walk through this life, not alone, but with Christ. So when you're insulted and disgraced because you determined to walk with Christ, your king, you can rejoice because you're walking the path of deliverance. You're walking the path of discipleship. So it's true then for every Christian, regardless of the suffering we're facing right now, that we can rejoice in God's grace because he answers prayers and petitions often in the already, but certainly in the not yet where all pain and sorrow and death and insult will be removed and we'll have perfect fellowship with Christ our King. Second, as we consider Psalm 4, we learn that God's people can rejoice in his grace, even in the face of insult and disgrace, because he protects the faithful. So even in this walk in the already, we believe that God protects the faithful. So David writes in verses two and three, how long exalted ones will my honor be insulted? How long will you love what is worthless and pursue a lie? Know that the Lord has set apart the faithful for himself. The Lord will hear when I call to him. So the wicked, who insult the righteous, believe that they're in superior standing. They've measured themselves by the value system of the world and they are exalted. And they look at those who seek after righteousness and obedience to God as lowly and just think they're to be marginalized forever. These people who set themselves against God love only the things that have no lasting value and are convinced of the lie that God has no power here. But what they love is worthless and what they believe is a lie because God has set apart his people for himself and he listens to the cries of his people. He hears, he responds, he vindicates and he restores his people. So we read about this in the biblical narrative. Imagine for those 430 some odd years as the Israelites are in slavery in Egypt who are crying out to the God of their father Abraham to deliver them. These exalted Egyptians have to be thinking these Israelites are crying out to their God and their God has no power here. But God proved himself faithful then and he's proved himself faithful ever since, and he'll prove himself faithful once again. So it seems like it's a long time between when Christ left this earth and whenever it is that he'll return. But don't let the length of time deceive you into believing the lies of the wicked that God has no power here. Instead, Pursue the remedy when you start to walk in disbelief that David prescribes here for those who are insulting him and for those who have set themselves against God. He says in verses four and five, be angry and do not sin. On your bed, reflect in your heart and be still. Offer sacrifices in righteousness and trust in the Lord. So what are they to do? these who have set themselves against God, who only love what is worthless and pursue a lie, they're to pursue reconciliation with God. They are to be angry and not sin. Now, forgive a little bit of a technical discussion here, but that's not the best translation. I think we need to read instead, tremble and do not sin. So in the history of the Old Testament. There's the Hebrew Old Testament and there's the Greek Old Testament. The Greek is a translation of the Hebrew and not all of those individuals knew Hebrew that well. So there was a time when the Jewish people just didn't speak Hebrew. They spoke Greek. And so translation was made. And so it's not always the best. Things are complicated here because the Greek translation is a fine translation. Jesus and the apostles used it. And very often in the New Testament, they quoted from it. There's a text in Ephesians 4.26 where Paul is instructing believers to live in harmony with one another, not letting the sun go down on their wrath. And we've all said this first. It's one of the only ones we've probably memorized and used with frequency because we get angry. We say, well, I'm angry and I'm not sinning. So there's that verse that says, be angry and sin not. Some have just thought that it's a quote from Psalm 4. And all of that's a little bit subjective in determining what's a quote and what isn't when it's just a phrase. But because the you weight know, of the writing on it says this in Ephesians 4 is a quote from Psalm 4, then English translators have a choice to make. They can say either we're going to, go with the Hebrew and have the better rendering of tremble, or we need to go with the Greek. So that way, when people see the footnote that Ephesians 4.26 is quoting Psalm 4, they'll see the actual quote of be angry. And so our English translation here says, be angry. I'm going to go forward saying that it's tremble and do not sin. This is why. Number one, when Paul uses a phrase... He is talking to the community of faith. He's talking to the new covenant community who have found new life in Christ, who have put on the new self, and who are imaging God's likeness. And he's instructing them on how to live peaceably together and says, do not let the sun go down on your wrath. Do not be angry with one another in sin. You know, when you're angry, do not sin and don't let that anger abide. Instead, reconcile with your brother or sister. So Paul's talking to believers. David is speaking to those who have set themselves against God. And he's telling them that you've pursued a lie. You love what's worthless. You think that God has no power here, but you're wrong. So tremble. Fear. Because even though you have placed yourself on the seat of God's throne, God is still on the throne and you will receive his judgment. So tremble, stop your sinning. Stop what you're doing now and look to God. Then he suggests a further action. On your bed, reflect in your heart and be still. Sit in the fear of God and reflect on your life and what God demands of you. Allow the quietness of the night to give way to the speaking of your conscience so that your soul will be convicted of your failure to follow God. We cannot hear our consciences when we are speaking accusations against the righteous. So David says, stop speaking and listen. And then he instructs them, after you have recognized the error of your way, offer sacrifices in righteousness and trust in the Lord. So obviously we're getting this old covenant, Mosaic covenant background of offering sacrifices. So offer right sacrifices to the only God and trust in God alone. Put your hope in him and join the community of faith who have been set apart by God. So instead of standing in the way of the righteous in opposition to God, they're to make an about faith and stand with the righteous in submission to God. So there's a twofold response for Crystal Lake Baptist Church and our friends here. First, remember that despite your identification as God's people, you and I are capable of standing against God and insulting and disgracing the righteous although we have identified with Christ because we are in the already and we have sinful hearts that are progressively being changed into the image of Christ, we sin and we set ourselves against God. So when we read a Psalm like this, far be it from us just to look at our favorite enemy and say, they need this. I need this and you need this. So when you recognize through the work of the spirit and the community of faith that you're loving what's worthless and pursuing a lie and setting yourself against God, you and I must in repentance graciously appeal to God's grace as we pursue reconciliation with him and with his people. As a church, you and I have a responsibility to one another To help us see our blind spots and let each other know when we're pursuing lies and loving what's worthless. They wouldn't be blind spots if we can see them, right? We need each other and we need to cultivate the kind of relationships in our assembly that not only can we speak into someone else's life, but they can speak into our life and know that we're not going to reject them and be jaded because of it. So this needs to happen informally as we get to know each other better as we share our lives together and as we pursue Christ together. But then this also happens formally as a church in what we refer to as church discipline. So there are situations where there are members of the assembly who choose to pursue after a lie in what is worthless and it's the responsibility of the church to call this Airing individual to repentance. There are steps that go along with that, but that is what is an act of love because it restores the individual to God and to his people. So as we've talked about church discipline in the past, especially as we're working on writing our church constitution and working through that section we need to understand that this idea of discipline extends back from the beginning of God's relationship with his people. Discipline restores. And that is the kind of discipline whenever we have to exercise it that we ought to exercise. One that has at its aim restoration with God and the saints. So whether we issue that call or whether we receive that call formally or informally, we need to recognize our pattern of sinfulness as we stop what we're doing, evaluate, plea for the spirit to convict, and then pursue reconciliation with God. So that's the first response to this instructive list that David gives. The second response is that you and I must remember that God's justice will come on those who seek to disgrace God's people and on those who reject him. It's going to happen. Yet, the mercy that we've received from God compels us to share that path of mercy with all those who oppose God and who oppose us along with him. So we ought to pray for justice, but we also, as those who have tasted of God's mercy, pray for mercy, even on our enemies as our Lord taught us. And then we need to remember that God uses means to answer prayer. And when it comes to showing his mercy to those who oppose him, we pray that God shows mercy, and then we go and share that message of mercy with those who have rejected Christ. So it is true that we don't save people. Sometimes we talk about soul winning. Well, none of us are soul winners because we don't win souls. But God uses his people to share his message of mercy, the message of Christ who died for sin. And so in that sense, we go out with a soul winning message, with a soul saving, mercy giving message. The message that we can be reconciled to God, that we must repent of our sins and that because Jesus Christ paid the price for those sins and because he stands ready to absorb the wrath of God that's aimed at every sinner, we can come to him and have hope and new life and friendship with God. So believe the gospel, repent of sins, receive Christ, submit to the spirit, and then share that message with all those who don't know it. And then, as those who've been added to the people of God, we can rejoice in God's grace to us even in the face of insult and disgrace, because God will protect his people. Third, as we consider this psalm, we learn that God's people can rejoice in his grace, even in the face of insult and disgrace, because he provides satisfaction and security. This is what we've sung about all morning. This is what we've prayed for this morning we can find satisfaction and security in God alone. So verse six, many are asking who can show us anything good. Where does anything good come from? Well, the answer is let the light of your face shine upon us. Lord, good things come from God alone. So when you are walking through that valley of your life, when you're stuck in a rut, when you're talking to someone who feels hopeless, and the question is asked, why is there nothing good? Where do I find something good? We cry out to God, say, let the light of your face shine on us. So in our times of despair, in times when it seems like there is no good thing in your life. Do not look for your security or satisfaction or good in a government or a political figure or a job or a hobby or a recreation or any other place that promises something good. Look to God alone. Why? That's an assertion. It's not an argument. Why? because you have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and new wine abound. I will both lie down and sleep in peace for you alone, Lord, make me live in safety. So full granaries and flowing vats of wine indicate a good harvest in an agrarian society. There's some level of joy and security and satisfaction in that perhaps David was lacking some level of physical prosperity. And so he's looking at the wicked who seem to have it and saying, well, I don't have that, but I do have joy in God. So he's comparing their possessions and the joy that comes from it with his joy in God. I think it's more likely that David's just simply pointing out that those who don't have God can only find maximal joy in something that's going to run out because wine vats empty, granaries run low, and you don't know if the next harvest is going to be plentiful or not. So in that case, someone without God who can only find joy in gifts from God, though they wouldn't recognize that as from God, if if you only find joy in a physical aspect of this life, That's it. It runs out and your joy's gone. But if you recognize that those gifts are never meant to be an end to themselves and that your joy is never intended to be rooted just in the gift, but that the roots of your joy are supposed to grow further down into the God who gives you the gift, then you have a joy that lasts. Then you have security that stays. Then you have satisfaction that won't go away even when your corn runs out and when your wine dries up because God is there forever. So whatever the most joyful occasion in 2020 would be, it's not going to be a uh, you know, barn full of corn and a vat full of wine unless you're, you know, a vine dresser and a farmer. Whatever it is that you can put your mind on and say, if that happened, that would be the peak of my joy this year. If your joy is in that alone, you're chasing after something that's worthless and you're believing a lie because it'll go away in an instant. Bank accounts get drained when there's a major home repair that's needed. Beautiful, fancy cars go to dust when you wrap them around a light pole. Your physical health crumbles in a moment when you least expect it. None of those things provide us joy and security. And even if you have them in the moment, when you lay your head on your pillow at night, you have to wonder, will it be here tomorrow? the Christian never has to wonder if God will be here tomorrow so we can lie down and sleep in peace because God makes us live in safety. We reflect on this Psalm and we just understand that virtually every day the unrighteous hurl insults and seek to disgrace their opponents. But in as much as we've received these insults and in as much as we're targets for disgrace, because of our faithfulness to God, we can rejoice in his grace because he faithfully answers prayer. He protects the faithful and he provides satisfaction and security for his own. May he do this for us. And may we always appeal to him in our hurt and confusion seeking his protection and help and seeking our joy and satisfaction and security in him for both this life and the life to come.